When are people going to see that nothing ain't never going to change unless somebody finally makes up his mind to stand up and fight? Damn. Netrich Radio presents Hopping Mad with Will McLeod and Arliss Bunny. Now, here's Will and Arliss. Welcome to Hopping Mad. I'm Will McLeod. And I'm Arliss Bunny. Today, I'll be remembering the Easter Rising. And I'll be talking about the 21st Century Glass-Steagall Act. But first, we have a few stories to discuss. Apparently, North Carolina did not learn from Indiana, where REFRA has proven to be an unmitigated economic disaster for the state. Right? North Carolina forced through HB2, a bill which is essentially designed to overturn all local ordinances protecting LGBT folks, including transgender folks, and essentially bans transgender folks from public restrooms. The law goes a little bit further than REFRA, and is so horrific that within hours of its signing, American Airlines, the NCAA, PayPal, and Dow Chemical Company had all made statements in opposition to the law. So here's what's happening. We know that this is, according to everyone who looks at this, not just bad for Americans, not just a violation of LGBT rights, but bad for business because people punish states economically when they try to pass these kill-the-gays bills. So North Carolina is about to catch it as businesses flee from the state after they put anti-gay ordinances into law and swept away any local decision which was made to protect LGBT folks, which is what happened in Charlotte. In Charlotte, they had a trans-inclusive, non-discrimination act, and HB2 kills it, sweeps it out of law, makes it so that it's not even allowed to be there. So, I'm pissed about this. Most of North Carolina is pissed about this, and it's a stupid decision for them to have made before an election, so I really, really hope that North Carolina Democrats get it together and kick these guys out of office. I'm going to go to some place that you really don't expect. I'm going to Cairo, Egypt, and talking about graffiti. A hat tip to The Guardian for the really wonderful article on this, but also go to the go to our website, imhoppingmad.com, and take a look because I'm going to link to some additional um, blog posts that have really incredible slideshows and other pictorial elements showing a lot of the graffiti that I'll be talking about in just a moment. If you were in Cairo prior to 2010, you didn't see graffiti. There was a little bit here, a little bit there, maybe, but it, it absolutely was not prominent and not common. However, since the Arab Spring uprising in 2011, graffiti has become one of the major ways that citizens have continued to express their opposition to the government. Graffiti murals depict protesters who were blinded by the birdshot the army used against them as non-lethal crowd control. They depict many of the martyrs of Arab Spring, and they mock the presidency, showing one president's face blending into the next, blending into the next, indicating that nothing has changed. 
The government, for their part, has been cracking down on artists, driving some of them to flee the country and steadily painting over graffiti. Additionally, art spaces and publishers have been raided and closed, but the spirit of the rebellion, though diminished, has continued and evolved, now including social justice messages, including those about women's rights. And some of those things are really interesting to see and really lovely to see, and I'll make sure to include those links. Sadly, American University at Cairo is newly contributing to the destruction of this vibrant pictorial history of resistance by tearing down one of the most prominent and important graffiti walls, the one which runs along Mohammed Mahmoud Street. Part of the wall is covered by a mural painted by artist Allah Awad during a 50-day period in 2012, and describing it, he says, I decided to translate the sound of people to the wall. For four years, American University Cairo has received significant cultural capital by allowing the wall to remain unwhitewashed, but now they are demolishing it and the building behind it as part of a government-approved renovation of Tahrir Square. American University at Cairo actually held a conference called Reframing Downtown, to which, by the way, none of the activists were invited. They claim they will be documenting the artwork and plan to put up an exhibition. But as one artist, Wael Eskander said, let's take photos of the drawings inside Egypt's temples and then take them down and do an exhibition. The discussion around this is all really about what forms of culture count as real heritage. Graffiti artists continue their own haunting and beautiful work, now incorporating statements like that of well-known mural artist Abu Bakr. Erase and I will draw again. Sociologist Mona Abanza has written, All of us are in denial. Tahrir is over, and the graffiti is part of it. We had four years of trauma, killings, and euphoria, but humans need normalcy, and the normalcy is this order. How sad is that? please go to imhoppingmad.com and take a look at the incredible work by these talented, talented artists. We should all be sad that such important history is being erased by American University Cairo. Up next, Will will be talking to us about the Irish Easter Rising here on Hopping Mad. Abrahamic and pagan roots that celebrates both traditions in actually equal measure. To that end, it's a time of death and rebirth. It's the first spring festival after the long winter, and with rabbits and eggs being images we used to celebrate, hopefully chocolate in the case of the rabbits, there's some ancient fertility folk religion weaved into it as well. This Easter is important for two reasons. It's the 100th anniversary of the Easter Rising, which led to the independence of part of Ireland, now called the Irish Republic, 
But in addition, March 24th would have been Scotland's Independence Day had Scotland won the referendum instead of the Union. The history is important and, unfortunately, not widely understood. Easter Rising was an act of desperation during the First World War. Uh, People who feared conscription into the British military to be sent over the top as cannon fodder for an empire they opposed rose against a military power they had no hope of defeating. They thought that it was better to die at home for Ireland than far off in some foreign land for the British Empire. Three organizations formed the major backbone of it. The Irish Republican Brotherhood, headed by Patrick Peirce, was your traditional anti-colonial organization. We would think of them today along the same lines of anti-colonial third world nationalists. They were joined by IWW member and trade unionist James Connolly and his Citizens Army. It was a socialist organization designed to fight the union-busting policies of the British government, and it grew out of the Irish Trades Union Congress. The third major participant was Cumann and Ban, the Irish Women's Council, led by feminist and suffragist Constance Markovists. Cumann and Ban still exists, by the way, as a paramilitary organization that opposes the Good Friday Agreement and is one of the more radical Irish nationalist organizations still in existence. When Americans talk about militant feminism, they really have no idea what they're talking about as militant feminists in an Irish context have rifles and improvised explosives, much different than the nasty Twitter comments that people complain about in an American context. These organizations banded together and took key positions in Dublin on the morning of Easter Monday in 1916. 1,200 effectives took positions throughout the city, with 400 gathering at the trades union building called Liberty Hall, under the command of James Connolly. They met under a banner which read, We serve not King or Kaiser, but Ireland. Martial law was declared on Tuesday. Rebel forces failed in their objectives to take train stations and port facilities, which were defended by a token British force roughly equal in size to the rebels themselves. That failure allowed some 16,000 British troops to pour into Dublin. A majority of the fighting occurred where British troops entered the city, with insurgents laying ambush from buildings. The uprising disrupted the daily lives of most of the people in Dublin. At first, public opinion was extremely opposed to the rising, but that changed and changed quickly when British soldiers, frustrated and terrified by insurgent attacks, broke into homes and bayoneted civilian bystanders. In one incident, a pacifist journalist named Francis Sheeney Skeffington, along with two pro-union journalists, Thomas Dixon and Patrick McIntyre, were executed by firing squad on the orders of the captain of the Irish Rifles, who then commanded the Portobello Barracks. A, this would be a British Unionist Labour Party politician, Richard O'Carroll, was shot during their capture, as was a child. Those deaths of civilians were met also with deaths caused by indiscriminate artillery fire into positions near rebel-held areas of Dublin. That was the main weapon used by the British military to fight the uprising, artillery. And the indiscriminate shelling of portions of Dublin shifted public sentiment far, far against the British state. It was that shelling, along with snipers, which eventually forced back rebels from their positions. The shelling of the general post office led it to be abandoned by rebel forces, and eventually to the rebels' unconditional surrender. All in all, 485 people died in the week-long battle. 260 of them, more than half, were civilians. 126 were British forces, while 82 were Irish rebels, and 17 were police officers. 
2,600 people were injured, including, again, 2,200 civilians, around 370 British soldiers, and 29 policemen. No discernment was made by the people counting the casualties between rebels and civilian bystanders. Neither was that distinction made by the forces which were attacking rebel positions in Dublin. In the aftermath, 3,430 men and 79 women were arrested. Most were released, but 90 were sentenced to death within a week by military courts, 15 of whom were summarily executed. That includes James Connolly of the Citizens Army, who had been wounded in the fighting. Because he could not stand, they tied him to a chair so that he could be held upright for the firing squad. Those executions, along with the indiscriminate shelling, vastly changed the opinions of the Irish public. The executions were ordered stopped after only 15 of them had been carried out. And the sentiment in support of Sinn Féin grew massively. Just two years later, at the 1918 general election, Sinn Féin won a vast and sweeping majority of Irish seats and declared an independent Irish republic. This led directly to the Irish War of Independence and the existence of the modern Irish Republic. Most modern Irish politics derive from that struggle. James Connolly's Citizen Army, the Irish Trade Union Congress, led directly to the modern Irish Labour Party. Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil are both groups that split off from Sinn Féin. The Irish rising of 1916 is deeply meaningful to many of us, including many of us who aren't Irish. A hundred years after the rising of the seven still existing Celtic nations, only part of one is an independent country. For those of us with a pan-Celtic vision who see the fates of Ireland, Scotland, Wales, the Brej, Curno, Mano, and Galicia as fundamentally intertwined, this Easter sees us feeling hopeful. We've seen a referendum in Scotland, which, while it failed, led to the rise of the SNP and a massive boost to the independence movement. Our allies in Catalonia are also going forward with their own independence movement. You saw Juntos por Si, United for Yes, actually win their fight to create a pro-independence majority in the Catalan government, and they're now engaged in a constitutional battle with the Spanish government. In the long term, we're winning. In Scotland, the Labour Party has fallen so far that they are no longer fighting with the SNP for first place. They're tied with the Conservatives and are fighting not to be third. While the majority of the independence movement in Scotland is left-wing, the dividing line in Scottish politics is no longer left or right. It's union or independence. We look back towards history and we're thankful that in the modern day, we're able to have these disagreements democratically, without war or violence or bloodshed. But we're able to have these debates now and we're able to have this democratic fight now because the Irish bled for the idea that the United Kingdom ought to be a union of the willing, not the colonized. That everyone else can move forward without bloodshed is because the Irish shed enough blood that no one else wants to go through that again. Arles? There are really two different kinds of terrorists. There are apocalyptic terrorists, and there are terrorists who have specific goals. And when we look at independence movements like Ireland and Scotland and um, the Palestinians, we are looking at people who have a specific set of goals. In other words, if they achieve those goals, they're done. Yeah. 
their their objective is not to continue to wage war and not to continue to bring grief to a region. And before we pat ourselves on the back with democratic ideals, I think we probably need to look at, at people who are still struggling with these kinds of nationalist issues, yeah. nationalist needs, and acknowledge that those are all connected. These are all connected. The Kurds and the Palestinians and the, you know, the Catalan. This is, these are all people who are connected. And yeah. solving, if we are willing to solve this in one area, we need to be willing to solve it in another. We need to be willing to make peace in all of these areas. And when I say areas, I mean territories, I mean physical regions. And yeah, it's complicated. And yeah, it's difficult. But it's vastly better than war. And it's so much better than instability. And the kind of instability, if you look at the Palestinian problem, the instability there has damaged the entire Middle East, not because the Palestinians have damaged the entire Middle East, but because all of the other players around them have created a level of strife that is unacceptable. Yes. Solving the Palestinian problem, giving the Kurds back their land, letting Kurdistan be Kurdistan. Those are the kinds of things that cause an entire region to change, even though they're really small. You're really talking about small amounts of territory. Yeah. It changes the nature of what's going on in a region. I think that the kind of solution that we've seen in Ireland has made all the difference. It really has. Also, the people in Ireland, there is a lot of support in Ireland for the Palestinian cause, as well in Scotland. There's, there's massive support for the Palestinian cause in Scotland because they themselves in Ireland and Scotland see these movements as intertwined, as connected, as part of that same struggle against imperial ideology, struggle for nationhood, for self-determination. That basic struggle also connects into places in the United States with Native American governments yeah, that aren't respected. That, yeah. that, I, that struggle for sovereignty, to say we are a people, we still exist. We We're count. not going away. Right. We count. That also connects tangentially to things like Black Lives Matter. People saying my life matters. Yeah. I'm an American too. These things are all interconnected. And that's the thing that separates the kind of nationalism you see in Scotland and Ireland, which says we are all connected from the kind of nationalism you see coming from Donald Trump, which says we're better than everyone else. Yeah. And there's a very, very big difference. And when we talk about nationalism, it's a scary word because when people hear the word, they think about Trump. They don't think about all those nations that are fighting for their right to exist. And they don't think about all those conflicts where horrible things are happening. Because let's look at the Israeli and Palestinian situation and say horrible stuff happens there. Terrorism happens there. And it's happening because you have, in that situation, you have two nations who think that their right to exist is threatened by the existence of the other. Right. And that's what makes that situation so complex. And we don't have time to discuss it now. But no. <laughs> if you then... If you then draw that out to other conflicts, the, the fight for an independent Kurdistan, the, the, the fight for Rojava, the, the situations all around the world, the, the Hmong in Vietnam and Cambodia. Yeah, the, That's right. All these, all these nations that are trying to continue to exist, they are all connected. And we have to remember that. And so when we look 
at moments like the Easter Rising, I think what you brought up, Arliss, is exactly what we ought to think about. Coming up on Hopping Mad, Arliss is going to talk to us about... 21st Century Glass-Steagall Act. Which is something that we very badly need. Stay tuned. <laughs> talking about 21st century Glass-Steagall, which is something that we referred to last week when Alexis Goldstein was on with us, talking about Dodd-Frank. But before I get going on 21st century Glass-Steagall, I want to go back and do, again, another little slice of history about the original Glass-Steagall. Just some things I learned this week in addition to what I had talked about last week. Senator Carter Glass, as in Glass-Steagall, Democrat of Virginia, was a congressman for 16 years. During that 16 years, he was the lead sponsor for the Glass-Owen Act of 1913, which established the Federal Reserve System. So it's not like this guy did anything with his congressional career. Then he went on to be the Secretary of Treasury for two years under Woodrow Wilson, and then he went on to be a senator for 26 years, during which time he passed the Glass-Steagall Act of 1933. So this is a guy who made good use of his time in Washington. Meanwhile, just as a kind of an observation, because of the Glass-Steagall Act, J.P. Morgan, the bank J.P. Morgan, had to be split up. And so it's split into J.P. Morgan, the commercial bank, and Morgan Stanley, the investment bank. Clearly, that was enormously damaging to them, and they suffered so very, very much. <laughs> After Gramlish Blithely, and the London Whale, remember the, the London Whale deal? This guy was out there in London. He risked something like $300 billion of FDIC-insured deposits to gamble on synthetic CDSs, which we've discussed. And then he went on and lost about $6 billion in bets early in 2012. Even in spite of all of this, Jamie Dimon, the current CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, has the nerve to say the following... Banks are under assault. In the old days, you dealt with one regulator when you had an issue, maybe two. Now it's five or six. You should all ask the question about how American is that? First of all, you know, my response to that is asshat. But secondly... What yeah, that's an appropriate response. Yeah, but what he really means is we only had to promise high-paying revolving door jobs to one or two guys in the old days. Now we have to promise them to five or six. And, by the way, Mr. Diamond, I can solve that number of regulators problem for you right now. Just break up your company so that you fit all under the regulation of one industry. No problem. Solved. Done. Simple. Anyway, um, those are just some things I ran across I thought would be entertaining. On to 21st century Glass-Steagall. And, and remember that, as I said last week, this isn't bringing back Glass-Steagall. This is a whole new law. It needs to be much, much bigger and much, much broader to encompass the kinds of derivatives trading and the kinds of shadow banking that's being done now and to make sure that our system is safer. And just to reinforce the concept, 
this isn't the only thing we need to do, but I'll talk about that more in a little bit. The original legislation was sponsored by Senator Warren, Senator Elizabeth Warren, and Senator John McCain on July 24th of 2013, and then it was reintroduced on 7 July of 2015. The current co-sponsors on the legislation are John McCain, Maria Candwell, Barbara Mikulski, Tammy Baldwin, Bernie Sanders, Sheldon Whitehouse, and Angus King. So Republicans, Democrats, and an independent, or he was independent at the time. Now he's a Democrat. He's apparently found the light anyway. But there is, as Alexis was saying last week, there is bipartisan ground to be found on this subject. Some basics about Warren McCain. It puts a wall between commercial and investment banking, the kind of wall that existed under Glass-Steagall. There's a five-year transition period into that because, of course, the companies just can't make that happen in a day. And there are two six-month extensions that regulators can grant if the companies prove that they do indeed need that time. It newly incorporates securities which did not exist and were not covered under the original Glass-Steagall. Perhaps most importantly of everything in Glass-Steagall other than the wall between commercial and investment banking, it reincorporates or it adds in the specifics about what the phrase business of banking and closely related mean. It used to be that the Fed, the FDIC, the Office of the Controller of the Currency were able to get around Glass-Steagall based upon the way they interpreted the terms business of banking and closely related. 21st century Glass-Steagall goes into great depth to make sure that this is absolutely crystal clear and will be enormously difficult to get around. They've been very, very specific about how it's called out. So that's one of the things that distinguishes this legislation and makes this preferable to just bringing back Glass-Steagall. Breaking up systemically important financial institutions, SIFIs, as Alexis was talking about last week, does a number of things for us. It simplifies their structure, making it possible for them to write and, if necessary, to act on legitimate living wills. The living wills that we've discussed in a couple of different shows, the big problem with them, and the reason that the Fed hasn't really been happy with the living wills that have been submitted to them, is because these companies are so big and so interconnected that there's almost, in fact, I don't believe there is a way to write a living will that would prove that he wouldn't do damage to our overall economy if something happens in these companies, if they start to go under. There's no way to break them up at that point in time that would not be damaging. And if you go through the process of establishing 21st century Glass-Steagall, because you automatically make these companies smaller and more manageable, by doing that, you make it possible to write a living will. So you make it possible to go through the process of one of these companies going out of business without doing damage to everything around them. It simplifies the interconnected nature of single companies and lessens the idea of two interconnected to fail. Remember, we talked about that last week, too. And it simplifies regulatory options, making it much easier for things like capital and margin requirements to be increased, required, and enforced. It simplifies structure of these banks, making them more manageable. And this is something that Senator Sherrod Brown has really talked about a lot. And he's well worth reading on this subject. But the most interesting comment I heard on this concept was from John Reed. John Reed's the 
former chairman and CEO of Citigroup. And he now says, and by the way, I believe he was the chairman when Citigroup bought Travelers Insurance and therefore became Citigroup. But what he now says is that combining a variety of different financial institutions financial cultures under one roof did not save costs and was not more efficient. The merger of Citibank and Travelers Insurance did not end up saving any appreciable costs. He also now thinks that smaller, more specialized players will be in a better position to, of course, given proper legislative backing, but they're in a better place to be more competitive as long as everything's regulated as long as there's a level playing field. And it turns out the other thing John Reed has said is that culture is very, very important. And it's something, again, that Alexis was referring to last week. Investment bankers and commercial bankers are not compatible. Commercial bankers are traditional. He refers to them as social extroverts. They're long-term thinkers and planners. They work with people. They work together in groups. Investment bankers are completely the opposite. They like risk. They're cowboys. And they're focused on immediate rewards. So think about the London whale when you think about investment bankers. Mr. Reed believes that no amount of management, restructuring, or regulation can get any company past these barriers. He thinks they're too high to climb. So even if you don't trust advocates on this subject, trust a guy who was in the middle of it. The Bank for International Settlement has a new report out, and what they're saying is that beyond a certain size, bigger financial sector in an economy reduces economic growth. Luigi Zengalis, the president of the American Finance Association, has said there is no theoretical reason or empirical evidence to support the notion that all the growth in the financial sector in the last 40 years has been beneficial to society. And let me repeat, that's the president of the American Finance Association. The IMF has a report out that says beyond a certain point, the instability caused by the financial sector growth outweighs any benefits it could bring to economic economic progress. That's an awful lot of weight lining up against SIFIs. Community banks will benefit from 21st century Glass-Steagall because the playing field will be more level. The Independent Community Bankers Association, the ICBA, sent this in as part of a comment in a letter to the SEC regarding the Volcker Rule, and they said, Banks are accorded access to federal deposit insurance and liquidity facilities because they serve the public purpose, facilitating economic growth by intermediating between savers and borrowers, i.e. taking deposits and making loans, and by maintaining liquidity in the economy throughout the economic cycle. These activities constitute the fundamental business of banking. And that's what the fundamental business of banking should be. And that's what 21st century Glass-Steagall puts in place. Currently, CIFIs are underwritten by the Fed and even under the not as strong as we would like Volcker rule because both they and their investors know that the government actually can't currently allow them to fail. So their risk still continues to be underwritten, at least to some degree. This means that civvies can take risks and gamble in such a way that their gambling underwrites any cost that comes out of their commercial banking. They can lower fees. They can drive smaller players out of business in commercial banking because their investment banking can carry the weight of profitability, essentially, and let their commercial banking slide. Their commercial banking doesn't have to be as important to them, to their bottom line. 
if everybody's playing on the same playing field, in other words, if banks are either commercial or investment banking, which is what 21st century Glass-Steagall would do, then community banks are on the same playing field with large commercial banks. So that puts everybody level and makes it a much, much more competitive environment. It also means, because we know that small banks are more likely to loan to small business, anything that favors small banks and community banks ends up favoring small business. So 21st century Glass-Steagall is important to Main Street. Further, 21st century Glass-Steagall would bring U.S. banking into much closer conformance with the new thinking on banking reform in Europe, as seen in the Vickers report and the Likanen report in the EZ Cross-border banking, there's so much cross-border banking. It's hard to tell where these transactions start, where they end, what countries they actually belong to, and what countries should be regulating them. Cross-border banking would be safer and more cohesively regulated if everybody was regulating to the same level. And finally, this makes the economy more stable. It simply does. It helps to end or quash to some degree, too big to jail and too big for trial. Senator Elizabeth Warren on the 14th of February in 2013, in her debut on the Senate Banking Committee to a panel of banking regulators who were testifying, she found out that none of them could name an instance where they'd gone to trial against a major bank. And she said, I just want to note this. There are district attorneys and U.S. attorneys who are out there every day squeezing ordinary citizens on sometimes very thin grounds and taking them to trial in order to make an example, as they put it. I'm really concerned that too big to fail has become too big for trial. Prosecution of financial fraud, by the way, fell to a 20-year low in 2011. 21st century Glass-Steagall is supported by people like the past president of the Dallas Fed, Richard Fisher, the past head of the FDIC, Sheila Blair, and the former chair of the SEC, Mary Shapiro. But 21st century Glass-Steagall does not end too big to fail all by itself. More still needs to be done, in particular, increased capital and margin requirements. And people like Senator Jeff Merkley are working on that, so keep an eye on what he's doing. And here's the final truly critical takeaway that I'm going to leave you with today. When commercial banks are again forced to focus solely on their own vanilla business, deposit and loans, they will, as a natural consequence, drive more ingenuity and creativity into that side of their business. And provided the appropriate regulation is in place and enforced, they will basically be forced to drive investment into the real economy instead of the imaginary unicorn financialized economy that has come to dominate the West. Up next, we have Mara Herwick. Stay tuned. Back on Hopping Mad, Mara Hurwitt is an attorney and House Rabbit Society educator in Washington, D.C. She received her Juris Doctorate in 2004 from Georgetown University Law Center, where she was a member of the American Constitution Society for Law and Policy, the Environmental Law Forum, and the Georgetown Law Journal. A former commercial litigator and antitrust lawyer, Mara now practices public interest and administrative law. 
Her work includes federal litigation to preserve America's iconic wild horse herds. She also provides pro bono assistance to animal rescue groups on a wide range of legal matters and recently helped draft provisions for the protection of domestic rabbits in a municipal animal welfare ordinance. Prior to attending law school, she served for 20 years as an officer in the U.S. Navy. Mara resides in Fairfax County, Virginia, with her husband Sam and eight rescue rabbits of varying sizes, colors, and temperaments, including Nora, a free-range Flemish giant. Mara, can you tell us about your work with animal welfare for rabbits in particular and why that's important specifically? Well, Arliss, I have been a House Rabbit Society educator for almost 20 years, um, long before I actually became an attorney. So I have a great interest in in taking care of and rescuing domestic rabbits. Uh, As an attorney, I've had an opportunity to use my skills and expertise in that area to further uh, protections for rabbits. This involves everything from advising rabbit rescue groups in confiscation and animal seizure cases to helping with anything from questions about constitutional law and free speech to, as I recently did, working on drafting protections for rabbits to go into a local ordinance on animal welfare and animal control. So it's a longstanding passion of mine and opportunity to do something to help the rabbits. Why does legislation need to be rabbit-specific? Well, I should say that There's an estimated over 5 million rabbits in, I guess, about 2.2 million households in the United States. And that covers everything from rabbits being bred for meat or fur to pet rabbits and rabbits being bred for research as well, unfortunately. It's difficult to gather statistics on exactly how many pet rabbits there are, but it's generally thought that they're the third most dumped animal at animal shelters and they're probably the third most popular house pet after dogs and cats. So that kind of tracks there. But a lot of the cruelty laws really don't include rabbits, either the way that they are written or the way that they are applied. And that's why it's really important that we include rabbit-specific protections, and, and also because there are certain issues that are more specific to rabbits. You know, the, the legislation and regulations are three levels, federal, state, and municipal. And at federal, all you have is the Animal Welfare Act, which now includes rabbits and small mammals other than mice and rats. But that's really just aimed at rabbits being used for research in research facilities. It doesn't apply, doesn't cover pet stores or pet owners. So there's nothing at the federal level at all for pet rabbits. At the state level, you have anti-cruelty laws. But again, most people really look at that for dogs and cats. So even though it generally would include rabbits, the problem is, especially in certain parts of the country, rabbits are thought of as livestock. So the rules are different for farm animals and livestock than they are for household pets. So it's often difficult to get the more general anti-cruelty laws enforced on behalf of rabbits. So that brings us back down to the municipal level, where, again, it's mostly dogs and cats, but that's changing. And people are beginning to realize that it's important to include rabbits so that when it comes time to enforce those regulations and laws, the rabbits aren't forgotten because people don't think of them sometimes in the same way as dogs and cats. In the state of Indiana, I think 
I want to say in 2003 or 2004, there was a new animal welfare, animal cruelty law moving through the state legislature and House Rabbit Society, Indiana House Rabbit Society, was able to put enough pressure on legislators and they didn't have any contra pressure. In other words, there was no pressure on the other side because for whatever reason, the other side wasn't paying attention, that we got rabbits included in the animal cruelty laws for the state of Indiana. And what the difference that has made here is that it gives judges a place to go. In other words, when a really horrible case comes to them and oh my God, some really awful things have happened in this state. I have a couple of rabbits here who were part of a 240 rabbit rescue from a single home. But it gave judges a place to go so that they can, A, confiscate the rabbits so they can take the rabbits away from the owner and get them into a system like the House Rabbit Society where they will be medically safe environments so that they have an opportunity to thrive. But that only happens here. And the kinds of fines they're able to levy and the kinds of prevention against future rabbit ownership that judges are able to place are only possible because we got those laws written and into state law. Exactly. Uh, and one of the other things related to that, that, that some jurisdictions are looking at, as you talked about getting the rabbits into the hands of a rabbit rescue, or even when they're held at a municipal animal control facility or at an SPCA or Humane Society, the veterinary bills can be immense. And now some jurisdictions are making it much easier f to recoup the cost of that from the offender. Although you generally need that conviction for animal cruelty in order to recoup the cost. Um, but that's also a, a huge help, I think, in not just being able to find them. Um, but actually there was a case, I believe, where someone in, in one of those cases where the rabbits were uh, seized in a severe neglect case, actually was sentenced to jail time for misdemeanor convictions, which is something you don't normally see. It's, it's yeah, that happened. That happened right here, and in fact, one of my rabbits was one of the rabbits seized in that operation, and I was there on that first day with that, providing that support. But in order to do that, first of all, Indiana Animal Control has to call you. They have to be, or the local sheriff, they have to make that call to the a rabbit welfare organization, as opposed to say the Humane Society who doesn't have facility for rabbits. And then on our side of the coin, we have to know and have the proper training in how to legally care for those animals during a period of time when they have not actually been legally awarded to us as a rescue organization. In other words, we are temporarily caring for those animals while they are still under the legal ownership of the original owner because the court hasn't ruled yet. Right. Exactly. And so there's there's training on both sides. In other words, the law enforcement has to be trained and the rescue organization has to have training. And, it, and it's important and that varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction as well. I think uh, New York City is actually one of the best examples. They recently transferred, used to be the ASPCA of New York, did the animal control investigations for the NYPD. And now... New York City has taken that under the police department, but they have trained their officers and they work with the ASPCA to do that. But there was uh, a, a large seizure of rabbits uh, just uh, a little over a year ago 
in Brooklyn. And it, it went fairly smoothly because of everyone being properly trained and knowing, you know, how to take them in, what to do with them. And so it, it worked out fairly well for the rabbits who they basically seized them from an outdoor facility right before a major blizzard. But, and it's yeah. also documentation, the pictures, the keeping the rabbits, you know, assigning each rabbit a name or a number as a separate identifier and tracking the health and welfare of that individual rabbit in writing, in photos, in everything so that that's available to the prosecutor. Um, yeah. And even, you know, there is I've advised people when they go in to before the rabbits are even moved to make sure lots of photographs and video. And, you know, the, if you've watched CSI trick, you know, you, you put a ruler. You always bring a yardstick and a ruler because you want to be able to show the scale. For instance, how small the cages are, how deep the feces in the bottom of the cage is. And the, the photographic evidence can be really compelling um, to, to make sure you have that even before you move any of the rabbits into a safe facility. And people should know that several of my rabbits who have been rescued in some of these really bad cases, they could not even lie down and stretch out in their cages. They could not lie down properly. They, and once they were rescued, they could not hop properly. They didn't have enough strength. They had to be, they had to essentially go through a certain amount of rehab just to learn how to move freely because they had been caged for so long in a cage that was too small for them. Also, right. very common for them to be caged with wire underneath them so that their droppings will theoretically fall through. But rabbits aren't built for that. And they end up with horrible, horrible sores on the bottom of their paws. So among other things, you end up, when you go through these huge rescues, you end up with rabbits who can barely put their feet on the ground because they're in so much pain. Yeah. And so when you're looking at that side, which is the enforcement of, of good, solid anti-cruelty laws, uh, one of the other things that we look at in, in legislation and regulations is improving the regulation so that you can limit the number of those breeder comp confiscations that even occur. So you try and get ahead of it. Um, one of the things that is gaining in momentum is uh, the ban on sales of rabbits as well as dogs and cats in pet stores and requiring them to use the facilities where they used to house the animals that they get from puppy mills and breeders to house homeless animals from their local shelters and rescue groups because the pet stores really don't make their money off selling the animals. They make their money off selling you everything that you need once you get the animal. So that is that is really gained momentum. And that's become, I, I think, a really important thing. And uh, there's been a lot of advocacy on behalf of rabbits to make sure that when they ban those sales of dogs and cats, that they also include rabbits in those pet store bans. So places like San Francisco, San Diego, Chicago and Cook County, Illinois, New York City all have those. Uh, most recently, just earlier this month, Boston, this, yes. they passed unanimously and the city council signed into law by Mayor O'Malley of Boston the same day. Um, so that now have a pet store ban as well that will go into effect. Uh, no sales of dogs and cats and rabbits. So that, of course, when you start limiting those outlets, the breeders have less incentive to breed. The other side of that is, 
especially with rabbits, because many are sold not through pet stores, but from backyard breeders, you have to really regulate the breeders themselves. And that is really best done at the municipal level. So one of the things about the pet store legislation is that really that can be sold as a win-win because rabbits who come through rescue organizations and go ahead and interview owners before the rabbit is placed, make sure that that rabbit is properly cared for. And the quality of the food and the expense of essentially the supplies is considerably greater than most people realize, you know, when they give their kid a rabbit at Easter, God forbid. So the pet store gains by being able to sell all these toys and supplies for the length of the rabbit's life. And since rabbits can live up to 14 years, That's a sale, you know, a thousand times over, several orders of magnitude over what they would have made on the original sale of, you know, the original $10 sale of the rabbit. So really, this should be an easy thing to sell to capitalists. You know, the educate, therefore make money. It should be, although the Cook County ordinance was challenged in court. Some pet store owners and breeders got together and sued in federal court. And in August, the judge dismissed their case. So the Cook County stands, unfortunately, and this is, you can't do this in every state. It's kind of backwards to me, but so you have a county ordinance and Chicago, the city of Chicago and Cook County follow that. But then little individual villages and townships within Cook County basically get the chance to opt out of it and, and allow stores to sell from breeders and puppy mills. Not sure why someone would really want to do that. But it's possible. But still, it's important that there was, on the federal level, a challenge to one of those ordinances for major city and county, and the challenger lost, and the ban stands. And, of course, another thing that we we didn't mention is when those animals come from humane societies, shelters, and rescue groups, be they dogs, cats, or rabbits, they're all spayed and neutered, which helps you know, not only do we decrease pet overpopulation by not contributing more through the sale and by finding homes for homeless animals, but they're not reproducing the way that the rabbits that you bring home from the pet store because you got a pair and the pet store gave you wrong information on their gender. So we don't have that problem when you get them from rescue groups. Well, and also neutered and spayed rabbits, their health has improved dramatically since their cancer rates go down. And also rabbits, unneutered and unspayed rabbits go through terrible teens, just like humans. (laughs) And the neutering and spaying of rabbits helps with some of the very sorts of behavioral issues that are the reasons that people take that cute Easter bunny they gave their kid at Easter and then take it out to a park where it cannot survive, by the way, and abandon it. So rabbits are, as Mara said earlier, the third most abandoned animal in the nation. And one of the things that happens in house rabbit society is that our rescue rates go up dramatically in the early summer, which is just about the time all those Easter bunnies hit puberty. 
Yes, it does. It sure does. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a very predictable cycle. It's the Easter bunny cycle. And you can look, I mean, really, when you're rescuing rabbits, you can absolutely look at your rabbits and figure out which ones were bred for 4-H, which ones were bred for Easter bunnies, which ones were bred for, you know, food. You can absolutely tell every time you rescue a rabbit approximately when its birthday was, basically, because you know what it's purpose was. Can you tell me just for one quick moment about the use of rabbits and in fact other animals as prizes? Yeah, it's just something that has a long tradition of places like state and county fairs. And we're seeing more and more locally, those are being banned because whether it's even if it's goldfish in a plastic bag, the lifespan of any any animal brought home as a pet is, is not very good. And if you just think about it, it it's just wrong on so many levels. It's horrific, yeah. Well, you're giving people who you're giving a kid a pet that the parents didn't expect for and, and don't know how to how to take care of. And we've already heard you guys talk about how the Easter rabbits are abandoned. So if a kid just randomly walks home from a fair with a pet rabbit that the family doesn't know how to care for, that sounds like a really bad situation. It is. Well, I knew if you, I, could, I know you had a particular interest in yeah, this too. So I'm a big advocate of urban farming, and this, and I understand that you have a perspective on that. And just in the course of this conversation, when you're talking about people using a wire cage bottom that gives rabbits, you know, sores on their feet and other problems, I've just done some Googling, and I've already found people who are, there's a big difference, it looks like, from people who know what they're doing and are building professional rabbit hutches, and then people who are like, oh, I'll just throw in a cage in the, in the backyard and have them sit on the chicken wire and it'll be fine. And, and there's, I'm already seeing a big difference between what should be happening for proper care of a rabbit and what actually is happening. So enlighten us about what's going on with urban farming and what needs to change there. Well, there are a couple of different issues in urban farming. First, you have the the whole problem with amateur backyard breeders. And that's for those that are breeding for sale as well. And, you know, rabbits, first of all, can reproduce every 29 days. So, you know, that kind of gets out of hand quickly. And that that's how you end up with a lot of these confiscations. So I, I want to mention that up front. But the idea of, you know, locavore movement and urban farming, it's nice if you're growing things in your backyard or you want to get some laying hens so that you can have fresh free eggs from a free-range chicken. The problem with rabbits, quote, urban farming and raising rabbits for rabbit meat because you're going to eat the rabbits is not just the fact that people have no clue as to properly caring for the rabbits while they're raising them. And as you pointed out, they, they don't know the proper housing. In addition to the problems with wire bottoms, you have problems with weather, predators, you know, even even animals that are being raised for food, there are humane farming practices. And exactly, exactly. And that's not being done already. No. And that's, so that's a real problem because people don't even think really about the practices for rabbits. Uh, it, it came up as an issue when Whole Foods was selling rabbit meat and looked at their, you know, their major suppliers. And those were large commercial breeders who, in theory, knew what they were doing and have some regulation from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which if you're just raising them in your backyard for yourself, you don't. But, OK, then you get to the issue of, OK, even if you learn how to properly raise them in your backyard, well, then there's getting them to your dinner table. Now, obviously, I, I don't eat rabbit, 
those of us involved in rabbit rescue, you know, you won't find us eating rabbit. But. I assume generally vegetarian is what I would, if I was going to yeah, say. Yeah, uh, <laughs> tend to be. And it's very convenient because, you know, it, it cuts down on the shopping. We eat a lot of the same thing as the rabbits and, yep. you know, you can eat our table scraps. So it works out pretty well. It's very efficient. <laughs> but getting the rabbit to your table, as opposed to mine who sits at my table to eat his salad, in this case, putting him on your dinner plate an amateur has no idea how to humanely slaughter an animal. Mm. I mean, yeah. you know, and it's rabbits when they're in, in great pain or terror will scream. Most people don't even realize that because rabbits tend not to vocalize. Um, but think about, you know, you're in a residential community and you have young children. Do you really want somebody slaughtering a screaming rabbit in your you know, next door in a backyard? So some places are now dealing with the, the urban farming movement by banning backyard slaughter. Uh, and if you are going to raise them for food, then you have to find a licensed butcher, basically, who knows how to properly slaughter an animal, which as a vegetarian, that's you know, kind of an oxymoron for me, but that's okay. Yeah. But at least mm -hmm. if you're going to do that, it should be done in a humane manner. But really, do you want that in... A residential area in your backyard and it's and it be, can become as well a health problem and a sanitation problem you know you would certainly think that if you were slaughtering Bessie the cow in the backyard but the same is true for rabbits so it's that that is a real problem that is just now coming to light and municipalities really need to address that in their zoning laws and in their animal welfare ordinances yeah clearly if people are going to do this at all there needs to be at least some form of licensing that shows that they know what they're doing which is not the case right now if it's going to happen at all Right. Uh, that's that's what I've been convinced of in this conversation and looking at this as someone who's who's a proponent of urban farming. I'm looking at these problems and urban farming is supposed to be at its core an alternative to industrial farming, an alternative to the factory farming situations. And we're looking at uh, at situations on these uh, backyard farms that are just as bad, if not worse than the ones that you would see in a factory farm situation. That undermines the entire purpose of urban farming. Well, we're out of time, and we just want to thank Mara Herwitt for um, coming on and helping us with some of these things. This is way outside of most of our frames of reference, but incredibly interesting and helpful. And thank you so much, Mara. We really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you for having me. You've been listening to Hopping Mad with Will McLeod and Arliss Bunny. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook at I Am Hopping Mad. I'm Hopping Mad. You can always hear our podcasts, including Extra Mad, the extended interview portion, on Stitcher and iTunes. If you do listen there, please rate us and help move us up in the rankings. That helps us find more listeners. And as always, we absolutely love to hear from you. And you can both download our podcasts and contact us through our website, at imhoppingmad.com. That's capital I, capital M, capital H, hoppingmad.com. Up next on Netroots Radio, K-Grow in the Morning with David Walton.